Everyone, this is Ellie McDonald, host of The Warren Current. I'm excited to be here today with Sarah Harari, the Associate Director of Innovation and Strategic Advisor to the President of Connecticut Green Bank. Sarah, thank you for joining us on our podcast. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up in your current role? Sure. Thank you, Ellie. Thanks so much for having me here. It's it's wonderful to be on the Wharton Current. So I first got interested in clean energy when I was in high school. And I feel very lucky that I was able to discover early on that that was my passion. It was, I did a science fair project where I said, what would happen if we put a wind turbine in my parents' backyard? Could it power the house? And looking back on it now, I understand why I did not move on from the beginning round because I made many incorrect assumptions in putting together the the project. I assume I was going to put one of the largest commercially available Vestas turbines in my parents' backyard, that the wind was going to be blowing at maximum speeds every day. And of course, you know, my findings were amazing. We found that not only could the wind turbine power my family's house, it could power all of the houses on the school block. And, you know, I had several very skeptical parent evaluators of the science fair come by and say, oh, maybe we should consider this. And I was like, yeah, maybe you should. So, you know, for me, that was a, a foundational moment where I was like, you know, we need to start doing things to affect climate change. Clean energy is a way that we can solve the climate change problem. And really from there, it's been a journey for me on understanding what's the role of system architects and what's the role of system users. So, you know, shortly after I finished that science fair project, I took on a volunteer role where I was calling up people, cold calling them and asking them if they were interested in getting clean energy for their homes and, you know, doing it as a utility bill, not actually asking them to install clean energy. And I encountered so much skepticism and derision around climate change and whether it was real and whether it was actually our problem to solve, that I just decided that I was going to go to engineering school and I was going to say, cut the people out of the equation. We are just going to design a better system for them to you know, live in. And you know, I went off, I became an engineer. I worked as an engineer for five years. And I was like, well, shoot, that didn't work either. Because if you can't persuade the people, you know, you can design a perfect system, but if you can't persuade people to use it, it doesn't matter. And, you know, after working down in Austin, Texas, in energy and power division of Jacobs Engineering about around really, you know, thinking about what are the clean energy, energy efficiency investments that we need to make in our building stock, I was interested in taking that knowledge and, and saying, how do we bring this back to a broader scale? How do we start to shape the market and policies to support people to make the decision to switch? And so I went back to grad school. I got my MBA from the Yale School of Management and my Master's of Environmental Management from what is now the Yale School of the Environment. And really there started to get interested in this question of, we come up with a lot of really interesting technology. A lot of really interesting technology is demonstrated and then really fails to reach market scale. And so how can we take some of these innovative ideas, innovative technologies and help them to be widely adopted? I got very interested in the idea of the state energy regulator and the electric distribution utility company as a key area of failure. So I Following school, I went to National Grid. I was there for a few years working on some of those topics. And then just over a year and a half ago, I joined the Connecticut Green Bank, where I sit now. 
So that's, that's like that journey to now. Yeah. It's so funny to hear you say all of that because it brought me back to my own high school science fair where I also tried to build a windmill. So it sounds <laughs> like this is a plug for high school science fairs everywhere. It really gets people into the environment and we need more young folks doing that. So good to hear that the science fairs, both of our starting points. And to your last comment, Sarah, I would love for you to tell us a bit more about the Connecticut Green Bank, what it does, the important work you're doing there, and generally where green banks fit into the climate economy. Great. So, uh, The Connecticut Green Bank is a quasi-governmental state agency in Connecticut. We are actually the nation's first green bank. We started in 2011. And since 2011, we've mobilized over $1.4 billion of investment into Connecticut's economy. And really, the function that we serve is to say, uh, where is there a market failure around the green economy. So that can be renewable energy, it can be energy efficiency, it can be vehicles, fuel cells, sort of anything that fits into that green economy. Where has the technology risk been retired, but the market is not adopting it? And how can finance be a tool to solve some of those barriers? We take in a limited amount of public capital, mostly from a line item on utility bills, We also take in some of the regional greenhouse gas initiative funds from the Northeast. And we take that and we use that limited public capital to attract private capital into the market. So that $1.4 billion of investment that we've mobilized, that's actually a ratio of one public dollar to $9 of private. So we are using our, our limited public funds to attract private capital to the market. That's resulted in 370 megawatts of installed capacity in rooftop solar. We also have very strong Justice 40 goals, which means that we are trying to direct 40% of the benefits that we create into low-income and underserved communities. So I'm trying to think about the the other part of your question, which is how do state green banks fit into the climate economy, which is a, a big question. But you know, the the idea is we can only get so far with grant programs towards our our decarbonization goals. Connecticut is sort of this fertile crescent between Massachusetts and New York. We are a smaller state, but we have very aggressive climate change goals. We are actually one of the first states to pass decarbonization goals. Our targets are to hit 45% below 2001 emission levels by 2030 and 80% below by 2050. And so in order to do that, we need to be extremely creative with the resources that we have. And using this limited public capital to attract private capital to the market means that we are not relying on ratepayers or taxpayers to fund those changes that we can really demonstrate to private financial institutions that these are good investments. And that's really the role of, of a green bank is to sort of demonstrate how, how products can be de-risked. And I can talk about an example of rooftop solar if that would be a helpful clarification. Yeah, I think it'd be great for for everyone listening to hear kind of what the life cycle of one of these investments looks like that Connecticut Green Bank's involved in. Great. So when we started back in 2011, if you went to your local bank and you said, I want to put solar on my roof, 
they would have had a very difficult time assessing what the risk was of them making that loan to you. And therefore, you would have had a very high interest rate on, on that loan from your bank. The role of the Green Bank is to go into those situations and to help the bank lower the cost of capital to you so that you can make the investment that you want to improve the resiliency, the reliability, the sustainability of your home or your business or your school. And we do that through a number of different tools. You know, one of them is a loan loss reserve, which is essentially a pool of money that we set aside to cover pre-specified amount of loan losses. And we can provide a partial partial risk coverage to lenders. It therefore limits the exposure that they have to, to losses. We can also do an interest rate buy down. So for that one, we have, you know, a product that's for homeowners that's called Smart E. So if you want to do solar on your roof, but you also want to do a heat pump and you want to put an EV charger, you can bundle all of those t- together and get sort of a, a, a loan from your local bank that we have an interest rate buy down on, which means that we cap the loss that the bank is exposed to at a one and a half percent, and we take on the next seven and a half percent of risk on that. So it's allowing the underwriter to have the same risk profile that they feel comfortable with while allowing them to do some of these new technology investments that they might not otherwise be willing to take on. And I'll say that, you know, the Connecticut Green Bank historically has been very focused on clean energy and energy efficiency products. But last year, in recognition of the success that we've had in driving investment in that area, our mandate was expanded by the state legislature to include other forms of environmental infrastructure. So now we can provide similar forms of financing and and a creative perspective on water, on land conservation, agriculture, parks and recreation, waste and recycling. I think that's a really interesting way that this work is expanding. You know, it's now we understand what it means to have a solar PPA or to have a solar roof loan. We understand that people will pay it back because they're saving money on their utility bills. What does that mean when you're looking at a park? Like what's the value of making investments in parks and how can you create that savings into a value stream that you can finance against? That's where the green bank model comes in to help shape the markets and to drive, you know, private investment in those areas. I think that's so fascinating and so relevant in a time where I think for the last, you know, two decades, the buzzword was renewable energy. Like, how do we get solar? How do we get wind? And now that's expanded to say that is one portion of the climate economy, but there are so many different facets that we need to change to hit these goals that have been set with COP27 and the Paris Climate Accords. And it's not just renewable energy. It's a whole breadth of technologies and water improvements and efficiency and recycling, as you mentioned. So I think that's really helpful background for our listeners to understand kind of the role of the Connecticut Green Bank. And one thing you pointed out that I'd love to expand upon is Connecticut Green Bank's mandate to focus on supporting underserved communities that may otherwise be unable to implement green innovation. So would you mind kind of delving a little bit further into how your team serves these communities specifically? Sure. So I think, you know, when the Green Bank started, we were thinking about where their market failures and market failures can take a couple of different forms. It can be that technology is not being adopted, or it can be that certain customer classes aren't being solved. So back in 2011, we solved 
the way to get rooftop solar into an investable product for banks and for homeowners. We said, great, this is going great. We looked around and there was definitely some communities in Connecticut that were not getting the same kind of offers. You know, it was our low income communities and our communities of color. Nobody was going there to, you know, provide them with the same offerings that the rest of the market had. And so we said, okay, this is not equitable. We need to ensure not only a speedy, sustainable decarbonization pathway, it also has to be just and it has to be equitable. And again, this is very much in line with some of the state policies and now very much in line with what we see coming out of the federal mandates around DOE and as particularly Dr. Shalanda Baker's work with the Department of Energy around Justice 40, which is very exciting. Here in Connecticut, what what we're doing is making sure that those customers are equally served as every other customer. And so we actually were able to create Connecticut as a solar with justice state, which means that low-income and underserved residents are demanding solar at the same rate as their more traditional solar peers. The way that we created that was we created a new program called Solar for All, which essentially we went out for RFP to the market to say, who's willing to work with these customers to create a lease product for solar and for energy efficiency? And how do we drive investment in those communities? We were lucky enough to get a very strong partner in Posigen, who came out of Louisiana, had done a lot of work down there with communities of color and low-income communities, and was able to translate their expertise up here to Connecticut. And so of the residential solar investments that we've made, 46% of of that have been into vulnerable communities. Um, And we actually now have the highest residential solar watts per capita installed in the Northeast. So in the Northeast, we have the highest cumulative watts per capita deployed with 87.3. The next highest is Vermont with 79.3 watts per capita. So, you know, we're, we're driving solar through this program, but we are also making sure that low-income and underserved communities are, are can be part of that transition. Yeah, I think it's so important for us to think about these technologies not in kind of an isolated bubble, right? And that's what's so exciting about these green banks. They really think about how do we take it to the state and the communities and how do we implement it? And I think it speaks to your earlier point about system users and system architects. It ensures that that managed marketplace is meeting in the middle in a just and equitable way. So as you mentioned, this kind of leads into a lot of the exciting federal policy landscape that we've been seeing in the climate space. So the recent passage of the Inflation Reduction Act in August created major tailwinds in the climate space. And in particular, the IRA allocated significant funds for green financings and originated the first national climate bank to be run by the EPA through the greenhouse gas reduction funds allocated. Can you walk our listeners through the particulars of the legislation? I know it's a huge bill, but... Also, just kind of walk our listeners through how this legislation will inspire innovation and affect change. Yeah, so there's there's two major parts of IRA, which is what I've been calling the Inflation Reduction Act. I feel like IRA sounds more friendly <laughs> versus yes. IRA sounds like a you know a retirement fund. Yeah, <laughs> you know I think that there's two parts of IRA that really are going to impact us. The first is the tax credits. There are a bunch of tax credits in here that change 
how and what we want to subsidize with federal capital and figuring out how to qualify for those tax credits, how to stack those tax credits is going to need a lot of creativity from all participants in the market. I'm very excited to see what comes out of that. I think it's going to allow us to stretch funding even further. You know, we were talking earlier about how right now the Green Bank is investing at a leverage ratio of $1 public to $9 of private doing these kind of tax credit stacking activities is really going to allow us to take that further and also do it in a way that adheres to some of the federal policy goals around supporting workforce development and apprenticeships and building America and building in these underserved communities we're talking about. It's very exciting. There's still a lot of work to be done to figure out what the details of these are and how they'll be implemented. That's going through a process of the IRS right now. We've commented in there's a lot of commenters that are seeking clarity there. So right now, that's still a TBD, but very exciting. The specific fund that you mentioned in IRA, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, is what is probably going to have the biggest impact for our operations most directly, though. It's a $27 billion allocation through Section 134 of the Clean Air Act. And the the highlight goal there is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution while driving investment in low-income and underserved communities. There's two big parts of the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which unfortunately I do not have a cute acronym for. The first one is $7 billion for zero emission technologies for low-income and disadvantaged communities. So that is really envisioned probably to be rooftop solar other zero emissions technology, again, specifically for low-income and disadvantaged communities. And the other $20 billion is for qualified projects, which is not defined. And of that $20 billion, a a subset of it, $8 billion, is also for low-income and disadvantaged communities. So you can see the real theme there from the federal government is driving towards, we want to make sure that this capital is going into those communities and can help transition how things work. So I think it's helpful when we're thinking about the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund to look at how we got to this idea of a national climate bank and and a little bit of what the history is. So if we roll back the clock, in 2009, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, ACES, was led by Congressman Ed Markey and Henry Waxman as well. It was passed by the House by a slim margin, and it never made it to the Senate. It did not get voted on by the Senate. That would have included a national climate bank in that bill, the Markey Waxman bill. And around that time, you know, there was still a lot of interest in pursuing this idea that you should be, we should be doing more to attract private capital to the market. And so they shopped this idea around to the states. And in 2011, with nearly unanimous bipartisan support from the Connecticut General Assembly, the Connecticut Green Bank was created. And as I mentioned, you know, we're the first in the nation. There was a lot of questions about what it would look like and what it could be. The Connecticut Green Bank is one model of how green banking can work to accelerate flow of capital into this space. You know, after we started in 2011, many other states and communities have started their own green banks to follow on in the model and to use some of the tools we create, but create their own that are best suited to the communities that they're serving. Now that we have the passage of IRA, we have the chance to once again create a national climate bank. 
And when you think about what does that mean, both for the places that have state and local climate banks and for the places that that don't, I think that there's a couple of key areas of interest. The first one is that, yes, there there's lots of places that have green banks or community development financial institutions, CDFIs now. Green banks very focused on driving investment in the clean energy economy. CDFIs were set up to ensure that families with less than 80% of area median income have access to capital. They're very focused on the low-income, disadvantaged communities. Traditionally, they have been very focused on housing. They're now expanding into clean energy. You know, those institutions exist, but they're undercapitalized and they don't have nationwide coverage. So if you have a national climate bank, you can make sure that the institutions that are doing good work can do more of what they're already good at. And you can also expand the reach of these kinds of tools into other places. And it also will give banks a lot of flexibility around how we procure capital and how we use the capital. It's very inefficient for institutions like ours to spend time going after capital that we're not sure what we're going to be able to secure. And also, if we're focused on securing capital, we're not focusing on addressing climate change. And so making sure that we are able to expend our staff time resources on building those tools, creating those products, that's what we need to be spending time on, not spending time on procuring capital to make sure that our process works. I think I'll conclude this section on the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund by saying $27 billion is a lot of money. Right now, the big question is on who gets the money, when will it be allocated, who are the eligible entities, what are the qualified projects that will fit under this umbrella. This money went to the Environmental Protection Agency, and right now they're going through a large RFI process. I I think I saw at the last count over 300 comments were submitted. Those comments are substantial. Our comments into that were over 50 pages. And soon from that RFI process, they'll be issuing an RFP. And we will continue to decide, you know, how can we use this allocation to drive and support the clean, green economy <laughs> at the state and local level? So I know I went through a lot. That- All really helpful context. And if you have any resources for our listeners who might want to learn more, do you have any recommendations for reading materials for them? Well, so the Coalition for Green Capital has really been a thought leader here, and they've done a lot of convening both between state local green banks and also the community development financial institutions, the CDFIs. So I would point to them as, a, as an information source here. The EPA has also done, they have a, a website set up where you can go and look at all the comments that have been filed around this, as well as the recordings for the two listening sessions they hosted, which were wild. You know, there was, it was totally open to the public. So you had presentations limited to three minutes, some that came from us, some that came from the general public. I think that my favorite pitch I heard was there was somebody that suggested that we should individually benefit from our actions to reduce climate change. And so therefore she who composts and does not fly should get a payout for her green lifestyle. And I was like, okay, yeah, I think that that's, you know, it's important to hear diversity of opinions about what to do with this money. (laughs) I love it. So I think, you know, we've talked about how this money gets allocated is going to be exciting, but we're not sure what the future holds. And so on the topic of climate innovation, what specific climate innovations 
are on the horizon for green financing, in your opinion, in the next three to five years? And what work are you doing in your role at the Connecticut Green Bank to vet these technologies prior to a potential investment from the bank? So there's a lot of policy that is really driving investment in this area. As I mentioned earlier on, you know, Connecticut has a goal of reducing 80% below 2001 levels by 2050. And to get there, it's sort of an all of the above approach. You know, we have current proven technologies, right? So solar is out there. It's in our portfolio. Energy efficiency measures are in our portfolio already. We're launching a battery storage program right now to help customers adopt those kinds of technologies. But my role at the Green Bank is really looking out into the future and saying, what will we invest in? And how can we make sure by the time that we're ready to make those investments, the risk has been retired? So right now, I'm personally spending a lot of time looking at electric school buses in the Connecticut Clean Air Act that passed this year. There was a mandate for environmental school just environmental justice school districts have to have clean school bus fleets by 2030 and all statewide have to have clean school buses by 2040. Now, when you think about a school bus, you're probably thinking about the type C bus if you grew up in the suburbs. Those buses today are largely diesel and the cost for a diesel bus is $100,000. The equivalent electric bus is anywhere between $300,000 and $450,000. Plus, you need all the charging infrastructure to do it. And so in order to hit that 2040 goal, you know, Connecticut is a small state. We have around 8,600 buses. And just to transfer all of those over, it's in the neighborhood of $1.3 billion for the buses and the charging infrastructure. Private capital alone cannot solve that problem. Neither can public grant funds that are administered through the EPA and other programs at the federal level. What we need to do is we need to demonstrate to private markets and to school districts that this transition can happen in a way that's beneficial for everybody. And so we can get these cleaner transit assets on the road faster. I think that there's a lot of interesting work to be done, both on demonstrating the technology of of the buses. You know, these are buses that are going to be sitting largely unused for very predictable windows overnight over the summer? Can we be using those buses to provide additional grid benefits like some of the V2G functionality? Uh, when these buses are out there on the road, what's their lifespan? How do we how do we monetize that? And how do we, not how do we monetize it, but how do we provide a financing product that will allow schools and the contractors that own those buses to not dramatically increase the cost to schools to make this transition. The Green Bank has to be part of conversations like that so that we can help lower the cost of the transition and we can help drive towards policy goals that our state sets. You know, I think that a big way that we're doing this in Connecticut is through something that our regulator has undertaken, which is the Equitable Modern Grid Program. We have many dockets that are open through it, but one of them is specifically focused on innovation. It's essentially a regulatory sandbox that allows us to test different functionality on a relatively fast time span. It's 12 to 18 months. And what I think is really interesting about that program is that the there's three different pathways through it. You can either be a third party that wants to demonstrate a solution You can be a utility that wants to demonstrate new functionality, or it could be a partnership between the two. So through that program, we're really hoping to see grid edge innovations that can be deployed not only 
in science fair style one-off projects, but are really demonstrating the functionality and the benefit that these deployments are going to have across the state when they're deployed. I think that that's something I'm very excited about is there's there's sort of a, uh, and so part of the the regulatory sandbox that says, if you demonstrate this using ratepayer funds and it's successful, we're going to do it everywhere. It's not just going to be limited to this one pilot project that you did. And I think that, you know, going back to the the introduction where we talked about, it's not just does something work? It's like, how do we get people to adopt the things that work? This is a big part of testing that from the grid resiliency side. And so for us from the Green Bank, these are products and programs that we are looking to, to demonstrate that the the functionality is there and that the utilities can integrate these technologies, that customers will adopt these technologies. And then we can be the the financing tool that answers that to say, yes, we can now drive investment and and capital towards these kinds of projects. So that's what I've been really focused on with, with innovation. Yeah. I think that's so exciting. And I think buses are thought about as a hard to decarbonize form of transportation compared to traditional consumer electric vehicles. So it's exciting to hear your work in this space. And I think, you know, speaking of exciting innovations within the climate space, can you tell us a bit about your work as the co-chair of the Connecticut Hydrogen Task Force? Where do you think hydrogen will play a role going forward? And what hurdles does it still face before it can be implemented at scale? So before we get into this conversation around hydrogen, I want to put out the qualification that I am still learning. I think that we are all still learning what hydrogen will mean. I think that because of the line items around funding through the bipartisan infrastructure law and also through IRA, you know, we are going to see a lot of investment in the hydrogen space in the coming decades. I think what we're still trying to figure out is where is it best applied? I think the answer that I've come to is that the there are areas of our society that are going to be very difficult to decarbonize with electricity and electrification technology. And those are the areas that we should be prioritizing when we think about where is the best application for hydrogen. In line with the federal interest in hydrogen, this year, Connecticut has also kicked off a, a hydrogen task force. As you mentioned, our president and CEO, Brian Garcia, is the head of that hydrogen task force, and I serve as his co-chair. And we've been meeting across the state with different representatives from across the hydrogen ecosystem. We have a very strong native manufacturing industry in Connecticut around hydrogen. We have Nell and High Axiom you know, electrolyzer and fuel cell manufacturers. I got to go to Hyaxium, which is a Doosan company this week. And we got to see, you know, the building that built fuel cells for the Apollo mission back to the space era. And thinking about how can we take this history and this legacy of supporting fuel cell and electrolyzer technology and, and translate that into work in the hydrogen space. I think that they're is an opportunity to reach some of these hard to decarbonize areas. And I think that we have the technology to produce the hydrogen. If we want to do clean, green, renewable hydrogen, however, the DOE and the state decides to define that in the future, I think that it will require, you know, citing these these technologies close to the production of that energy source 
which is not necessarily in the same location as it's being used. And so to me, the biggest barrier to the deployment of hydrogen is the question about how does it get from the places where we can produce renewable hydrogen to the places where we need to use the hydrogen. I think that the idea of blending it into existing natural gas pipelines is not yet proven in the United States and will probably face a lot of opposition. I think that the the storage of it is also complicated. We don't have those natural geological resources in Connecticut that are well suited to do that. So to me, the biggest barrier is that it's not being generated at the places we don't want to use it. And it's not being used at the places we want to generate it. I think that's a really important point. I was doing a little bit of hydrogen work over the summer and the transportation and storage costs more than double sometimes the cost of hydrogen production. So that's a really relevant point. And for anyone interested in learning more about that, definitely I would point you to the national hydrogen hubs that are potentially going to spring up around the country. And we'll see if Connecticut's a good fit for any of those. Yeah, I mean, Connecticut is participating in the national hydrogen hubs where we are part of the Northeast Hydrogen Hub Coalition. It's a coalition of six different states. It is producers, users, distributors across the states, as well as research institutions and state entities that are looking to define it. I think it's great that we're driving towards a more regional approach because I think through the work on the Connecticut Hydrogen Task Force, what we've seen is it it cannot be an individual project by project approach to transitioning. It really needs to be a system-wide transition. You know, one of the most interesting use cases for me in hydrogen is long-haul trucking, aviation, and international shipping, using it as a fuel. So if you want to decarbonize those areas, you can't just do it at a single location. You need a network of fuel. So how can you participate in those those national or regional you know, applications to help support that transition. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear and exciting to hear about how Connecticut's participating in its region. Kind of pivoting away from technology and innovation, Sarah, you and I are, are both familiar with, unfortunately, the lack of diversity within the energy and climate space, but we are seeing a lot of push for diversity measures. And also pushes to not only create diversity, but also to create inclusive environments to ensure that the diversity remains. So I'd love to hear about your perspective on that. And I know you're doing work with women in energy. So love to hear your take on that work as well. Yeah, I think that this is so important to securing some of the work that we were talking about earlier around supporting environmental justice in underserved communities. I I strongly believe that you can't do a good job supporting those communities unless you can understand their perspective. And the best way to understand their perspective is to have representative members of those communities inside the work that you're doing. And beyond that, you know, I think that it's important to have diverse voices in, in any discussion, but in particular in policy discussions, because it just allows a better, more robust policy. I I work on a couple of areas here, and I think it's not just about recruiting diverse candidates. For me, it's also really about building the pipeline of students into this space. I do a lot of work with high school students in the Boston area, here in Connecticut as well, around, you know, when when students think about climate change, they have sort of two reactions. One, it's scary. Or two, but I don't want to be an engineer. And I think it's important to work with students to help them understand that there's a lot of different functions and roles within the climate change space that are very needed. 
that they can envision themselves in as part of the future. You know, any job can be a climate change related job if you go into it with that mindset. And I think that when you give students the opportunity to sit back and think about some of the bigger questions, like who bears the cost of climate change? How can I be part of the solution? And invite their creativity that really allows them to help start to get into this space. Um, you also mentioned, you know, women in the energy space. I have long been the only female member of my team. I think that's actually been true for my entire career. And, you know, I, I, I'm very supportive peer-to-peer mentorships for women, even outside of their companies. So I'm heavily involved in the Women's Energy Network. If you are listening, I would really encourage you to go to the Women's Energy Network website and see if you have a local chapter. We're everywhere around the country. I'm on the board of the Boston chapter. And right now I'm doing a lot of work with them to help do some outreach to local graduate schools and colleges in the area to, again, do more of that pipeline recruitment building. This fall, we're going to be offering a scholarship to graduate students as well as undergrads. It's going to be a year-long program where not only do they get the the funding through the scholarship, but they'll also get a year-long mentorship from one of the women in our network to help them think about how they transition out of school and into the workforce that they want to be in. Because when I look around at the people that I finished school with that were in the engineering field that were women, you know, very few of us stayed in the engineering field. I think it's really important that you don't just you know, study it, but that you have some help to get into the careers that you want to be in and that you have mentors as you work, work through that, that can help you decide where you want to go and how you want to grow. So I think a lot of that resonates with me. I've definitely been the only woman in many, in many meetings, in many rooms talking about energy and energy finance. And that mentorship piece is really important as well until you get that pipeline of people coming in at the entry level, then it's hard to create that whole network and ladder within organizations of diverse candidates and of women. So I'm excited by what you're doing. I'm definitely going to follow up on your your plug for the Women Energy Network. And Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really exciting and illuminating conversation for myself. I know that green energy financing, climate financing in general is something that we're going to be seeing a lot more of because of Ira, and it was really exciting to talk about it. But before we leave, do you have anything that you want to plug with our listeners, a website, socials, a newsletter? I know you plugged the Women Energy Network, but anything else? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun to talk about these topics. The one thing I would suggest that your listeners check out is if you would like to get the experience of what it's like to participate in the green economy, we invite you to participate in our Green Liberty Notes offering. So this is offered quarterly from the Green Bank. It has a $100 minimum investment and a one-year term, and it allows you to participate in some of the financing and investments that we are doing here in Connecticut. So if you buy some of the green notes, they will actually go to support small businesses in Connecticut that are looking to do clean energy investments in in their their business and allows them to have a zero dollars down financing tool to do that. And you too can be part of can put your capital to work as part of the green economy. So we'd encourage you to go to our website and, and search for green liberty notes. We offer them quarterly. That's awesome. A great way for people to expand their investment portfolios. Thank you.
Sarah, thank you so much again. As I said, it was great having you on. And everyone who is listening, thank you for joining us on The Warren Current.